Good morning, and thank you for the for the warm welcome. I always love coming here. It feels like home. Uh, the the songs, the prayers, the reading of the word. It is it is very much like uh, John and I's former church, and so it does feel very much like home. Uh, so thank you for having us. And the saints at Foothills Baptist Church in Awatuki send greeting as well. And so uh, they are worshiping right now. So today. I want to start off by asking what will probably sound like a familiar question. What is the most important thing in the world? If you don't know why that's important, you weren't paying attention at the beginning of last week's service, because that was the question that Pastor John asked, and he asked, what is the most important thing in the world? It's a great question. It's a pressing question. It's probably something that's whether instinctively or intentionally, on the minds of most people. And John answered that question last week by saying the most important thing is that God is building his kingdom through his church, which is a family, which is his temple that he is building up, and which is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The text that we're going to see today is very close to the text that, that you all went through last week. But I want to ask you a follow-up question. What do you think your neighbor thinks is the most pressing need in the world? What do you think that your coworker thinks is the most important thing to them at that moment? What about the person that when you're at the park walking your dog or going to your mailbox and you see someone across the street, what, what are they thinking is the most pressing need that they have? Is it the price of gas right now? Is it maybe something a, a little bit bigger? Is it, a, is it a relationship that seems in shambles? Is it a child that has an emotional spectrum that's too hard for them to handle? And is going through things that they don't understand or comprehend? Is it all of those things all at once so that they feel like they are overwhelmed? It's probably not just one thing, is it? There's probably something that you and your neighbor, your coworker, all of the people that you encounter every day are pressed with that feels overwhelming. But we probably need to be reoriented to what those most pressing things in the world are. So last week, you looked at 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, which at the end of the text declares what we confess about Jesus. And Paul says this, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. That mystery is the person of Christ, right? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We are a people who confess to each other and to the world who this Jesus is, and we've been doing so for 2,000 years. An example of this in the early church is the Nicene Creed, which mirrors the language of the text that you read last week, the text that we're going to be reading this week. And right after it says that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, who made the heavens and the earth, it says this, we also believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven, 
and was incarnate, became flesh, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified. And here's the, the text that really gets at what you talked about last week and what we're going to be talking about this week. And who was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, who suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick, the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. So as we examine our text today, which is at the very end of the gospel of Luke, right? Where we're going to see in narrative form, the content that you talked about last week in first Timothy chapter three. So we're going to see the narrative of, of, of Paul's explanation of the gospel here. Like last week, if you are new here today, this text is all about the gospel. This text is at the core of what we Christians believe. This is the heart of the matter. And since we're jumping into a new text, I do want to give some background. I'm also a Bible teacher, so this is just my default position right here. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. It was written by a man by the name of Luke. Uh, this Gospel uh, is, is, is largely what, what Paul is going to articulate as he goes about his missionary journeys, traveling, making disciples among Jews and Gentiles. Luke himself is a Gentile physician, meaning he's not Jewish. Colossians chapter 4 talks about this. He's a friend of Paul, and he travels with Paul. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So at several points in time, if you're ever reading the book of Acts, you see he starts using first-person plural we, and we were going to this, this, and this or that a place. So he traveled with Paul. And he's writing in the book of Luke mostly to a Gentile audience. There were certainly Jews who would read this book as well, and certainly Greek-speaking Jews who would, who would read this book. But I think he's rightly writing mostly to a Gentile audience. And we can see this by the way that he situates his gospel in the, the secular history of Rome, right? We're very familiar with Luke chapter 2. We read it every Christmas, right? When right, Caesar Augustus has this census that he is taking, he situates it in that Roman context. He has universal implications in the gospel. He traces his genealogy to Adam, not just to Abraham, like Matthew does. He leaves out a lot of information about the Jewish law that the other gospels talk about. Now, he still talks about the Jewish law, but not to the degree that the other gospels do. And he has a tendency to substitute Greek words uh, for Jewish titles. So instead of using the word rabbi, he uses words like teacher. So you can see his audience is a little bit different. Most of us are probably Gentiles, so we probably feel a little bit more comfortable with this gospel at times. And he writes that his purpose in writing this gospel is this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished, so other gospel writers, I think, uh, among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he's writing to give certainty to this, I would say it's a patron, uh, about the things that he has been taught. And it's not just going to this Theophilus, it's going to all of the Gentile world. So we find ourselves at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, 
Luke chapter 24, which is going to be on page 885 of your pew Bible if you are new here today. And I know that it is the practice of this church that if you do not have a Bible at home uh, and you, you need a Bible, please take that pew Bible home, uh, read it, devour it. It will, it will change everything. So after Jesus' crucifixion in Luke 24, he rises from the dead. And in Luke 24, he appears to some of his disciples after he's appeared to some of them on the road to Emmaus. And this is what the text says. So Luke 24, 35 through 53 says this, 36 through 53 says this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened, his, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial, atoning death. And Father, that he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and the devil. Father, that you call on us to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. So, Father, we pray that as we read your word, as we hear your words today, that those things would be pressing to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the main point of this text is not a complicated one. It is that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus bring hope of the forgiveness of sins to the world through our gospel witness. That's about as slim as I could get it. I usually have like three sentences and people then are always just like, you got to slim it down a little bit. But the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus bring the hope of forgiveness of sins to the world through our gospel witness. So what I want to do is I just want to look at that first section again in Luke 24, 36 through 43. And I want to see that the focus of this section is that Jesus physically rose from the dead and that that has implications. So here, I'm just going to read it again. As they were talking about these things, and so Jesus has, has just been talking to uh, the disciples, or the, the disciples have been talking, 
And Jesus had been talking to some disciples and he'd gone away from them. So his disciples are talking about these things that he had mentioned. And what he had been talking to them about was that he was the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he's going to mention it again. It says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. And as you would be or I would be, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when they had said, when, and when he had said this, he showed them his hand and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they were just, they were beside themselves. They, they, not everything was hitting them, right? He said to them, have you anything to eat? Seems like a strange question. We'll talk about that in just a second. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. So this text, it starts with a focus on describing Jesus's resurrection. And there is a particular focus in this that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Now, I wasn't part of the, 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 the call to worship. I wasn't asked about that text, but I'm guessing John it read first John 1, 1 and 2 because of all of those sensory words that John uses there. That which we saw, which we heard, which we touched, which we proclaim, right? Jesus physically rose from the dead. This is very important to Luke. Luke is making this point intentionally, and John makes this point very intentionally, specifically because of a heresy that's popped up in John's day. John is making that point, where if you read 1 John chapter 4, John says that if anybody denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, right, that they're not a believer. Of course, that's a central doctrine. Notice the focus of this text, though. It's painstakingly clear that Jesus rose physically from the dead. He stood among them. He talked with them. They, it even says that they thought that they saw a spirit, right? But, he, but Jesus responds, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And just in case they were not convinced, right, while they're still kind of, their minds are reeling, he's like, you have anything to eat, Right? This is just the cherry on top of that Sunday, right? Okay, he's eating fish. And John does the same thing in his gospel. Jesus eats fish among the disciples in order to show that he has physically risen from the dead. So why is this idea of Jesus physically rising from the dead so important? Why does this matter? Well, there are actually... We could spend the rest of the day and tomorrow and the rest of the week talking about all of the implications of this. John told me I only had two and a half hours. So, so I'm only going to talk about a couple of things. Don't worry, I'm not going to go two and a half hours. I usually go shorter than he does. So first, the resurrection declares who Jesus is. So think about that text that you read last week. It vindicates him. It shows that he is the son of the father, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God the son. Colossians 1 says that it shows that all things, right, because, because Christ has raised from the dead, Christ is preeminent over all things. Acts and Acts, which is also written by the same author. These are the chapters that follow right after it. They're to be read as one volume. It's two volumes that are part of the same novel, right? Two volumes that are part of the same book. And Acts 2 
three and four, Peter makes a very clear point in each one of these chapters that you murdered Jesus, he's talking to the crowds, but God raised him from the dead. You did this, but God did this. And what does that do? It shows that Jesus is who he said that he was. He is God the Son. Jesus' resurrection also assures us of our resurrection. Paul spends a lot of time talking about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in other texts. I'll read part of what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there's some people that are arguing that. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your hope and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be rep- misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. But then he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, which he has, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's the first of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits. For as by a man death, but by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, that's the man who death came through, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What an awesome thought. Because Christ has risen from the dead, we have hope that we too will rise from the dead. That is hope for this life and the next. So as we think about these awesome ideas, right, we see a world around us that shows that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. The world is lost and broken. Our bodies are broken, weak, sick, and ailing. We see things going on at a global level and probably at a national level and even a local level in your neighborhood that shouldn't be happening. So what does this physical resurrection of Christ from the dead offer us? Well, hope now. I do think it offers us hope now. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in us. Paul makes this point at the end of Romans chapter 8, and this is what he says. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through this spirit who dwells in you. God has given those who trust in his son, his spirit to dwell in them. That is hope now. It's also hope for the future. We're going to talk about that, but it's hope now. It also gives us that Christ physically rose from the dead. It gives us assurance at the final judgment. Paul gives a sermon in Acts 17 that's pretty famous, and he says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's that man whom he has appointed as Jesus. 
And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has appointed a day of judgment, but God raised his son from the dead. Why? Well, Paul says that one of the reasons why this is to give us assurance. If we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, death has no sting, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. So it gives us hope for now. It gives us assurance at the final judgment. It also gives us encouragement for our loved ones in Christ who have passed away. I know very few people who have not been affected over the past couple of years by somebody who, who, who has passed away. Almost everyone I know has a loved one who has passed away. And if we have loved ones in Christ who have passed away, that 1 Corinthians 15 text talks about it as well, but Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then at the end of that passage, he says, encourage one another with these things. If you have had a loved one pass away at at, at any point who is in Christ, we have hope that because of Christ's resurrection, because he was raised from the dead, they will precede us. That That is a wonderful, comforting thought. It also gives us hope for the future. Brothers and sisters, Christ rose from the dead, and so will you if you have placed your hope and your faith in him. Which is going to be what he talks about in this next part, so we'll talk about that a little bit more. So in verses 44 through 49, we're going to see that Jesus' death and resurrection and the proclamation of the gospel to the nations fulfill the Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament professor. I would like to camp out on this for the next several weeks. However, however, I will spare you. We will read the text, and then I'll make a few points. Verses 44 through 49 say this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And and we see glimpses of this in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus talks about how the, the Messiah must suffer and die and raise again. And then he talks to the disciples about how they must uh, bear their cross daily and follow him. So he talks, he's been talking about this throughout his gospel. Uh, that, that the Messiah, that he, right, uh, must, that what was written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Remember from the previous section, they were still in kind of like wonderment. They were in disbelief. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he's been mentioning these things throughout the gospel. And what was Jesus talking about with them during his ministry, right? What what are these things from the law the prophets, and the psalms that, that he means. And if, if you don't know, the law, the prophets, and the writings, which the psalms make up the biggest book, that's the way that the first century Jewish person thought about what we call the Old Testament. 
So the laws, the first five books, sometimes we call it the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The prophets, it's a little bit different than our prophetic books. It actually starts with Joshua, and it goes to Judges, and then it's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then everything we think of as a prophetic book except for Daniel and Lamentations. And then there are the writings, which are the Psalms, are the biggest portion of, and then all the rest of the books, all the same books, but they think of it as law, the prophets, and the writings. So he's saying what the whole, what we think of as the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in my death, and resurrection, and the, the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. That's what he's saying is, the, 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 is fulfilled in the Old Testament. So I want to break this into two ideas. The first is that Jesus' death and resurrection fulfill the prophets, and then the second is that our proclamation of the gospel fulfills the, 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 the law, the prophets, and the writings. So have you ever heard somebody say when they were reading through this text in Luke 24, man, I wish that I could have been there to hear what Jesus said, or I wonder what texts Jesus talked through. Have you ever, have you ever heard somebody say that, or have you ever said it yourself? Well, the good news for you is I think we actually have a pretty good idea what those texts were. First, by reading the Old Testament ourselves and seeing texts that correspond to this, but second, the very next chapters in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter is actually just talking about Old Testament texts that talk about how Jesus coming fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. And so I think that that's actually probably some of the text, certainly not all of the text, but some of the text that Jesus talked with them about, and he's giving us an exposition. So we have heard through the witness of the apostles. So Acts 3.18 says this by saying, this is Peter speaking, and he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then he mentions Deuteronomy chapter 18, which I'll talk about. So some of these texts that I think that Christ fulfilled from the Old Testament, Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac. In this text, Abraham, who has been promised offspring, right, and has just been given the child of the promise, is told that he is supposed to take his son, his only son whom he loves, and take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. I will abbreviate this as short as I possibly can, hopefully not to the point of incoherence, but he travels three days. He ends up on Mount Moriah where he goes to sacrifice his son, but the Lord stays his hand through an angel. This exact same place comes up again later on in scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 24 when David takes a census and there's a, there's a pestilence on the land. Again, I'm, I'm simplifying it. There's a pestilence on the land that lasts three days. And in this very place, David builds an altar to worship the Lord. There's an angel present as well. Second Chronicles 3, 1 and 2 says that Solomon built the temple at this very place on the mountains of Moriah. This is the place where Jesus was crucified and three days later rose again. There is no way in this world that there are these three days angel texts where you've got in the first one, a father that is told to sacrifice his son. And it's not just any son. It's the son of the promise. And it's the father who was promised that all the nations will be blessed through him. Right? There's no way that this is a coincidence. And then what happens? Well, the father sacrifices the son for the forgiveness of sins and sends his angels as witnesses. That is a, if, if your skin doesn't like goose bump or whatever we call it. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. That's just some awesome stuff there. 
We also see texts like Genesis 49, a text that you're probably more familiar with, 8 through 12, when Judah is promised that the scepter will not depart from him nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He's described as a lion. Numbers 24 talks about that as well. And then there's this text in Deuteronomy 18 that that Peter is going to quote just a few chapters from now in the next book. And he's going to say that there has been this prophet. Deuteronomy 18 is talking about this prophet that is going to come that's going to be like Moses, the great prophet of Israel, but greater than Moses. And in Acts, twice, they say that this person has come and it is Jesus. It is Jesus. The prophets talk about this. Isaiah 7 is a very famous passage. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then in chapter 9, it talks about how there will be a light to the nations that is going to come. Isaiah 53, that there's going to be a suffering servant who is described as in the same way that this king was described earlier in the book. Micah 5, Bethlehem, you are by no means the smallest of the the, the, the tribes of Judah, you, you are one of the smallest of the tribes of Judah, but from you will come a ruler. From you will come a ruler. We read things like we read at the, the introduction, Psalm 16, where it says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. God did not abandon Christ to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 110, which talks about Christ's priesthood as being in a different and better order. All of these texts talk about this. So we see that Jesus' death and resurrection are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, but so is the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. We saw that in some of those texts already. But in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God tells Abraham that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah 66 pictures the nations streaming into Jerusalem in order to worship God. And it's even amazing. It says that even some of those nations from the farthest coastlands will be priests and Levites to God. And in Acts, this is not part of the Old Testament, but Acts 1, 7, and 8, the disciples ask this question to Jesus. He's, he's resurrected from the dead. It's, it's, it's in this time period. It's right here, basically at the same time that Luke 24 is happening. And they say, When will you hand over the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, he corrects them. And he says, the time and the hour aren't for you to know. I'm paraphrasing. The time and the hour aren't for you you to know. So the the wing question, he corrects them on. And then he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which he says here, starting from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is not just an Israel kingdom. This is a whole world kingdom. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. And that's what the whole structure of the book of Acts follows. So when we think about God bringing about the fulfillment of history in what Christ has done and in what we proclaim, here are a few things I want us to think about. First of all, God's providential plan for the ages was to reconcile humanity to himself through his son. This is God's plan. God's promises have not only not failed, they have been perfectly kept. If you feel in life right now disorganized, chaotic, if your life feels unsure, rest in the providence of God today. Student, you're at a pressing time in the school year. If you feel school and friendships, your parents and life are pressing in on you, 
trust in God's providential plan. Mom and dad, if you feel like you're holding everything together by a thread, that the relationship with your spouse, the bills that are coming due, inflation, whatever it is, is pressing in on you, entrust yourself to God's providential plan. Much easier said than done. Much easier said than done. But he knows what he's doing. Trust in him. I also want us to reflect on the gospel. The, the, the biggest problem that we have is not those concerns that I just noted. The only way to be reconciled to God is through his son, Jesus Christ. Through his perfect life, through his sacrificial atoning death, and the resurrection from the dead, we, all of us, can be reconciled to God. And if we are in Christ, we are reconciled to God. Sin can be forgiven by repenting and believing in Christ alone. The biggest problem that we have as human beings is that we are separated from God if we are not in his son, Jesus Christ, and need to be reconciled so that we can be part of that family, that temple, and that pillar and buttress of the truth that we talked about last week. The biggest need that you have in your lives is to be reconciled to God. And that is only available through Jesus Christ. I cannot implore you enough to repent and believe. And Pastor John, Pastor Bo, Pastor Steve would love to talk with anybody who, who would, who's interested in hearing more about that. And anybody near you, right? Just feel free. We, we would all love to talk to you. And for the believer, preach the gospel. Preach the word. Just a few sentences ago, I said that the biggest need that those outside the church have is to be reconciled to God. Believer, do you really believe that? Does your life bear that out? Does the way that you spend your time, does the way that you talk about things with other people, does it reveal that the biggest thing that you believe, the biggest thing that these people need is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? The answer to this question is probably the most truthfully answered by how often we talk with others about their need for Jesus. It's probably not whether we would just say, of course I believe that. You know who you're going to encounter this week, by and large. God will providentially place people in your paths, but you know the family members you're going to talk to who don't know Christ. You know that you've probably got stewardship over your small children who needs to know and understand the gospel. You know your neighbors, hopefully. You know their names. You know whether or not they have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Your coworker, the person who used to sit across the cubicle from you, but now maybe he's on a Zoom call that you have to, you know, have a couple of times a week. Maybe you're back in the office and it's across the cubicle again. You know those people, right? If you have a, if you, if you have a local park and you walk your dog, I can guarantee you that you have talked with hundreds of people in your park because if you have a dog, they always stop and talk to you, right? Does, does the way that you talk about the, the conversations that you have with them, does it show that you believe that they have a pressing need to have relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit? If not, pray that God will give you boldness this week in sharing the gospel with them. You don't have to just blurt out, repent the belief, right? <laughs> it can be natural. It doesn't have to be forced or awkward, right? It doesn't. Right? We can have natural, real conversations with people. We really can. 
So the last section, Jesus ascends into heaven. Verses 50 through 53 say this. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. I know what all of you are thinking right now. What did this look like, right? Like, what did this look like? I don't know. I've seen film adaptations of it. They're all very different, right? But ascension stories, these lifting up stories, are common, or they're found, at least, in both Greek and and Jewish uh, writings. In Greek writings, I don't know if you know this, but but Hercules and even uh, uh, and, and Dionysus uh, and even Zeus have ascension stories. Remember, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. I think that he knows that they're going to picture these things in his mind, these stories that are well known to them. And even Romulus, who is one of the founders of Rome, has an ascension story. But a closer parallel, and I think that Luke is pressing it on a little bit more, is when Elijah goes up to heaven and he gives his ministry over to Elisha, where Elijah goes up in a whirlwind and a chariot into heaven, and his prophetic ministry is handed over to Elisha. So Jesus ascends into heaven, and he says that he does this in order to, it says, uh, he blessed them and he parted from them and he carried them up. And in the previous section, just a few verses ago, he mentioned how he was going to give them the promise from the Father. Verse 49. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit that he is going to give to his disciples. John talks about this a lot in John 14 and John 16, when he says that this Holy Spirit who he gives them will lead them in all truth. He will bring to remembrance all the things that he has said to them. So God is going to send the Holy Spirit. We see this happening in Acts 2 at Pentecost, just a few weeks from the time of Jesus's uh, ascension. Romans 8.34 says this, because Christ is at the right hand. So what, what did Jesus do when he, when he goes, when he ascends into heaven? He goes to the right hand of the Father. And we saw that, we sung about that in our texts today, or in our songs today. And Romans 8.34 says this, because Christ is at the right hand of God, there is no one to condemn us. So Christ ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. And Paul says, because Christ is at the right hand of God, there is no one to condemn us. He says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? If you are in Christ, sisters and brothers, please understand that he is pleading and saying, they are mine. She is mine. He is mine. What a comforting thought. All the trials and tribulations and difficulties you go through, you are mine. That's what Christ says. Ephesians 1.20 and 1 Peter 3.22 show that Christ's rule and dominion, and they show that everything has been subjected to him. Everything. Hebrews 10.12 talks about how there are still elements where this hasn't accomplished, but he will come again and put all things under subjection. So with Christ dying, raising from the dead, and ascending into heaven. What does this ascension have to say to us? What does this mean? Like, what what can we understand from this? First of all, I think it's that we shouldn't be satisfied with the things of this world. 
that too may seem like an odd application to you, but it's exactly what Paul says is the application of it when he's talking in Colossians 3. He says this, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you are raised with Christ, we're, we're about to do some, see some baptisms today. This picture is a, being buried with him in his death and raised with him to a newness of life. Colossians 2, Romans 6 talk about that. Sorry, I'm not trying to steal your thunder. I'm sure you're going to mention that. But if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And then he says this in verse 2 right after it. Set your mind on things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on things above. The old NIV used to say, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Why? Because Christ is ruling and interceding. That should bring us comfort with every trial we go through, with every joy that we have. Every joy that you have, praise the Lord. Christ is ruling and interceding. Every difficulty, praise the Lord. Christ is ruling and interceding. So the next time you have something good happen in your life, have that thought. The next time something that's, that's difficult happens to you, a trial that you're going through, have that thought. And of course, his, his ascension into heaven causes us to look to his coming. Acts 1.12 shows the ascension and that the place where it happens is on this, this road to, to Olivet, the, where, where Jesus had just given the Olivet Discourse in the last week of his life. And in that discourse, Jesus is telling his disciples to look for his coming. He says a lot more than that, but he's like, look for my coming. And so that's where he ascends into heaven. So it's certainly going to bring those ideas back to his disciples about his coming again. One day, this Christ will return with the clouds of heaven and make all things right. So again, all the joys that you have and all the difficulties that you have, let that thought take you captive. Let it take you captive by living a holy life dedicated to the glory of the Lord here and now. And let it take you captive by proclaiming the mystery of godliness to your neighbor and your coworker and your friend. That the biggest need in the world that they have is their reconciliation to God. And that is only possible through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are a people that are in absolute and utter need. And Father, we thank you that you have met that need. You have more than met that need with the person and work of your son. Father, we were a people who were walking in darkness. We were a people who were stumbling in our way. We were a people who were following after death and we were ourselves dead. But Father, we thank you that you have made us alive together with your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that through his life and death and resurrection from the dead, we are no longer walking in the old way that we once walked, but Father, that you have called us to a newness of life. And so Father, we pray today that you would give us grace when we have things that are going well in our lives, that we would praise you. When we have things that are difficult, we would seek you and praise you. And Father, in all of these things, we would see that the biggest need that the world has today is to be part of your family through your son and by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.